You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 402 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As you guys will recall, when we left off last time, the struggle for the Lafayette Road was really heating up in the vicinity of Vineyard Field. Remember, for Federal Commander William Rosecrans, holding the road was important because it was his army's primary connection to Rossville just to the north, and beyond Rossville to Chattanooga. As y'all will recall, as we talked about a few episodes ago, in the brutal, confused fighting on the north end of the battlefield, the Confederates had come close to capturing the stretch of road in the vicinity of Brotherton Field and Poe Field but they had been unable to seal the deal, and so the Lafayette Road remained a contested objective in that sector. It was well inside federal lines north of the Poe House, but was in no man's land south of that location. But when we left off last time, farther to the south along the road, around Vineyard Field, the issue was still in doubt that afternoon. In the vicinity of the vineyard cabin, the road was full of federal officers trying to rally the disorganized elements of Carlin's and Barnes brigades, which had been routed out of vineyard field by the Confederates. And then, just to the north of the vineyard cabin, up beyond the log school, there was that small force of Confederates that had swept past Heg's left flank, poured out of the woods, and pushed across the road. Those rebels, the 25th Arkansas and 39th North Carolina, were under the command of the senior officer present, Colonel David Coleman of the 39th. Before Coleman could halt their forward progress, the men of the two regiments found themselves some 300 yards beyond the Lafayette Road, in a large field farmed by a fellow named Benjamin Brock. This open area stretched all the way west to the knoll upon which sat the Widow Glen's cabin and Rosecrans' headquarters. Looking around, Coleman could see no friends and a great many enemies. On Coleman's left front, John Wilder had directed elements of his lightning brigade to swing around, and those Federals now began to pepper the isolated rebels with both rifle and artillery fire. Then, looking to his left rear, Coleman could see fresh Yankee troops moving north up the Lafayette Road, and they would soon cut him off. 
Those Yankee troops were from Harker's Brigade. And bonus points, if you remember in the last episode, we said that Division Commander Tom Wood had sent Harker driving due north up the Lafayette Road to deal with the Confederate penetration. In any case, with Harker's Federals rolling up behind him, and with the rifle and an artillery fire from Wilder's Yankees starting to take a toll, Coleman decided to beat a hasty retreat. The North Carolinians and Arkansans fell back across the Lafayette Road and into the sheltering woods beyond. There they rejoined the rest of their brigade, McNair's brigade from Bushrod Johnson's division, just as McNair was getting ready to advance. As McNair's rebels advanced, Harker's Federals coming up the road struck them in the flank and pushed the Confederates backward. Like their comrades to the north around Brotherton Field and Poe Field, McNair's brigade here had reached the Lafayette Road but was unable to capitalize on the opportunity. So, in these different spots, the Confederates may have been able to reach the Lafayette Road, but without reinforcements and coordinated action, they weren't going to be able to capture it and keep the vital road closed to the Federals. Successfully dealing with the attempt by McNair's Confederates to capture that section of the Lafayette Road was a win for the Federals. But, meanwhile, a short distance down the road, where Carlin and Barnes were trying to reform their brigades, things weren't going so well for the Yankees. As you guys will recall, the Union lines in Vineyard Field had collapsed so abruptly because of the unexpected appearance of Colonel Robert Triggs' brigade of Floridians and Virginians on the eastern edge of the field. Having routed Barnes and Carlin's Federals, Trigg decided to press his advantage. He led Colonel Jesse Finley's 6th Florida over the fence and into Vineyard Field. However, when Trigg and Finley reached the middle of the field, they realized that the brigade's other three regiments hadn't advanced with the 6th Florida. In fact, they were marching off in another direction, into the woods to the north. Shocked to discover that his other three regiments were moving in the wrong direction, Trigg galloped back to find out the reason. He was told that Jerome Robertson, the commander of the Texas Brigade, had hijacked Trigg's men to support his own push toward the Lafayette Road. Meanwhile, with the 6th Florida all alone out in Vineyard Field, Colonel Finley realized that any window of opportunity to overrun the nearby disorganized Federals had now closed, and so he pulled his men back to the safety of the woods at the east edge of the field. For the Federals, the relief won by the repulse of the attacking rebels, led by Colonels Trigg and Coleman, was short-lived. In Vineyard Field, William Carlin noticed that many of his men failed to rally, choosing instead to disappear into the brush and woods west of the road. Nearby, Barnes' command was in little better condition. Also here was Buell's brigade. While Harker was driving up the Lafayette Road, Tom Wood's other brigade, led by Colonel George Buell, was trying to hold his position at the western edge of Vineyard Field. There, amidst the chaos and confusion as Carlin and Barnes struggled to reform their brigades, Buell managed to hold his men together, 
His line was a bit ragged, but generally intact. Meanwhile, north of the vineyard cabin and east of the log school, Hegg's brigade was about at the end of its rope. Hans Hegg had rallied and reformed his men two or three times that afternoon. Each time he then renewed his effort to push deeper into the woods east of the Lafayette Road, and each time he was driven back. Now his brigade was reaching the point of exhaustion. And the rebels were coming again. Jerome Robertson, the commander of the Texas Brigade, was advancing his battle line, making a determined attempt to reach the Lafayette Road. And so, when Haig tried to push east yet again, two of Robertson's regiments, the 4th and 5th Texas, met the Federals with a withering blast of musketry and a charge. The rush made by the Texans proved too much for Haig's exhausted Yankees. An officer in the 5th Texas recalled how, quote, We came to close quarters, punishing them severely and driving them in confusion. End quote. Haig's troops quickly fell back near the road, where some of the Norwegians from the 15th Wisconsin attempted a desperate stand in and around the log school. But the Confederate pressure was too heavy, and they were too few. The Badgers were falling back when Hans Haig was shot down trying to rally his men. He lingered through the night and died the next day. He was the highest-ranking Wisconsin officer killed in battle during the war. The success by Robertson's right wing was duplicated on his left. There, the 3rd Arkansas and 1st Texas struck Buell's, Barnes, and Carlin's Federals. Carlin did his best to hold the combined line together in the face of the rebel onslaught, but he was already concerned about the fragile state of his own troops, and the added fire from elements of the 4th and 5th Texas into his left flank only added to the stress on his brigade. The Confederate pressure proved to be too much. Corporal William Records in the 72nd Indiana and Wilder's Lightning Brigade which was backstopping the shaky federal line in Vineyard Field, was shocked by what he witnessed. Quote, Carlin's men gave way and came back in dreadful confusion. They were generally throwing away their knapsacks, in some instances their weapons. They ran over us like sheep. By the time the dust had settled, Robertson's Texans and Arkansans had swept the Yankees from the woods and vineyard field east of the Lafayette Road, routing what was left of the brigades of Haig, Buell, Carlin, and Barnes. However, Wilder's Lightning Brigade, holding firm 200 yards west of the road, provided the solid backstop upon which their routed comrades might rally and reform. On the Confederate side, with his advance having ground to a halt and unable to make any headway against Wilder's Federals, Robertson called upon Hood for support, seeking both fresh infantry and more artillery with which to crack the Lightning Brigade's position and secure the Confederate hold on the Lafayette Road here. As it turned out, Hood had no guns readily available, but as for infantry, Brigadier General Henry Rock Benning's four Georgia regiments were close at hand, and they were ready, willing, and able to enter the fight.
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavours, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture. In front of the Lightning Brigade was a dry stream bed about halfway between Wilder's position at the tree line and the Lafayette Road. Most of the men who described it later would refer to it as a ditch or as the dry ditch. The banks were steep, cutting into the field about five feet deep. The ditch angled across the field from southeast to northwest, growing shallower as it wound its way north. For most of the width of Wilder's front, it formed a perfect natural trench. During the afternoon's fighting, large numbers of federal stragglers and wounded sought shelter in the dry stream bed. Now, on the Confederate side, 49-year-old Henry Benning, a former Georgia Supreme Court judge, led his veteran brigade forward through the woods toward the Lafayette Road in response to Robertson's request for support. However, the Brigade of Georgians wasn't up to its usual combat effectiveness. That's because heavy losses suffered at Gettysburg earlier that summer had cleaved hundreds of men from its ranks. Also, a wave of temporary absenteeism hit the brigade hard as it made its way through Georgia on its way to reinforce Bragg's army as the men traveled close by their homes the first time they had done so in nearly two years. Many took the opportunity to absent themselves from the ranks. They would eventually return to their companies, but that wouldn't be until after Chickamauga. As a result of the brigade's heavy losses at Gettysburg and the significant number of men who had taken French leave, Benning's 2nd, 15th, 17th, and 20th Georgia regiments 
carried fewer than 800 bayonets into action here on the second day of the battle. Nevertheless, the Georgians' advance was enough to scatter the remnants of the fleeing Federal units. As the rebels reached the edge of the woods near the road, they poured volley after volley into what was left of the brigades of Haig, Buell, Carlin, and Barnes. Sergeant W.R. Houghton of the 2nd Georgia remembered, quote, We pushed ahead and swung around against the fence just as the Yankee line in the field began to give way. As they ran back, we stood there shooting them down. It was horrible slaughter. The field seemed to be covered with dead and wounded. The Georgians swept forward out of the trees near the vineyard cabin. Sergeant Houghton noted there was, quote, open ground for 150 or 200 yards in front, end quote. When he spotted the line of Wilder's Lightning Brigade over across the way at the western edge of the field, Benning ordered his regiments to attack the Yankees. Across the way, corporal records of the 72nd Indiana watched as the rebels, quote, moved out into the farm in front of us and formed their lines upon the road. All of the artillery that escaped was now stationed at intervals along the line of our brigade. Our entire line from right to left opened on them. The rapid fire of our seven-shooters gave our line the appearance of a living sheet of fire. Lashed by the fire of the Union artillery and the Lightning Brigade's Spencer repeating rifles, the Georgians suddenly found themselves in a lopsided fight they couldn't win, and their attack quickly fell apart. The intense Federal fire led a large number of Georgians to seek shelter in the ditch. From there, they traded shots with the Yankees. John Wilder decided the best way to pry the rebels out of their natural trench was to enfilade them. To that end, he advanced two guns from Lilly's battery and four companies of the 17th Indiana to the northern edge of the field and had them fired down the length of the dry stream bed at close range. The enfilading fire tore into the rebels, just as the railroad cut at Gettysburg had trapped Joe Davis's Mississippians. The ditch at Chickamauga became a death trap for Benning's Georgians. When speaking to a reporter after the battle, Wilder said, quote, "It almost seemed a pity to kill men so." Benning pulled his shattered regiments back east of the Lafayette Road. He left perhaps one-third of his men lying in the field and in the ditch. The repulse of the Georgians offered a large number of routed and scattered Federals the chance to rally behind Wilder and his seemingly impregnable defensive line. Given this breathing space, officers, primarily from Haig's, Carlin's, and Buell's brigades, began the slow process of sorting out the men and reforming units as best they could. All afternoon on the 19th, rebels and Yankees surged back and forth across Vineyard Field and in the woods just to the north. Losses were heavy on both sides, and real success remained beyond reach as firm control of the Lafayette Road in this sector eluded both Federals and Confederates. However, following the repulse of Benning's Georgians, more Union infantry arrived on the scene to try and turn the tide on this part of the battlefield. 
By 5.30 that evening, only two of Rosecrans' 10 infantry divisions had not seen action. Major General James Negley's division of George Thomas's 14th Corps was marching up the Glen Kelly Road on its way to join up with Thomas. And then Brigadier General Philip Sheridan's division of McCook's 20th Corps was marching north just a mile or so below Vineyard Field, tasked with guarding Lee and Gordon's mills. With the battle like a raging fire, consuming fresh troops as quickly as they were fed into the fighting, McCook ordered Sheridan to leave one brigade to watch the crossing at Lee and Gordon's Mills and hurry the other two to Vineyard Field to support Wood's embattled division. Leading Sheridan's column toward Vineyard Field was Colonel Luther Bradley's brigade of four Illinois regiments. The 40-year-old Bradley had been born in Connecticut but moved to Chicago in 1855 and found work with a local bookseller. He had been active in the Connecticut militia, serving as a lieutenant, and after arriving in Chicago, he continued service in the Illinois State Militia with the rank of captain. After the start of the war, his militia experience soon earned him a position as lieutenant colonel of the 51st Illinois. By the time of the Battle of Stones River, he led a brigade. Bradley wasn't a flashy or boastful man, and his men respected him as a capable combat commander who cared about their welfare off the battlefield. His four regiments left the road as they approached Vineyard Field and moved west through the woods behind the position held by Wilder's Lightning Brigade. The Illinoisans formed up in the rear of Wilder's 72nd Indiana. Behind Bradley's men tramped Colonel Bernard Leibolt's brigade of two Illinois and two Missouri regiments, which took up a position in the southwest corner of Vineyard Field. Bradley's and Leibolt's brigades were in the process of deploying when Benning's Georgians fled from the Ditch of Death and skedaddled for the rear. A number of Federal officers, Phil Sheridan among them, watched the retreat of the Georgians and concluded that the moment was perfect for a Union counterattack. The feisty Sheridan ordered Bradley to advance and recapture some of the abandoned Union cannon in Vineyard Field and drive the rebels into the woods beyond the field. At the same time, nearby, Carlin and Buell, who had also decided the time was ripe for a counterattack, ordered some of their rallied and reformed troops forward. Carlin advanced the 38th Illinois and 101st Ohio, while Buell sallied forth with the 58th Indiana and 26th Ohio. Both officers seemed intent on at least restoring their original lines. Fragments of other commands, including some of Hegg's men, rallied and went forward as well, though by now their regiments had been reduced to little more than the size of companies. But the Confederates refused to be driven back easily. The rebels only grudgingly gave up their hard-earned ground yard by yard. Bradley described the fight as, quote-unquote, a pretty hot one. Once he and his men reached the middle of the field, he said, quote, we had a monkey and parrot time of it for a while. Yes, folks, you heard that correctly. A monkey and parrot time of it. Neither of us had a clue what that meant, but a quick Google search showed it was used to refer to an unhappy marriage 
in which both partners quarrel continuously. <laughs> well, so needless to say, I'm going to start using it in everyday conversation and try and revive it <laughs> because it's hilarious, right? A monkey and parrot time of it. Hey, how was your trip? Not great. We had a monkey and parrot time of it. Hey, how was recording the podcast? <laughs> it was rough. We had a real monkey and parrot time of it. Rich. <laughs> anyway, anyway, as they advanced, Bradley's Illinoisans were taken under fire by Robertson's Confederates from the north and by Triggs rebels who were lining the eastern edge of the field. Sergeant John Glenn of the 27th Illinois found the fighting to be, quote unquote, warm work. Writing home, Glenn said, Our brigade entered the fight something over 1,500 strong. They killed and wounded near 300 of us. This was doing bully, yet we held our own. This was doing bully. Well, I, I guess from the context, he means they were being knocked about, but they held their own. Probably. Well, in any case, they were certainly having a real monkey and parrot time of it. Rich. Sorry. <laughs> That's it, I promise. At any rate, as the Federal Infantry advanced into Vineyard Field, men were detailed to draw off the abandoned Union guns by hand, since most of the battery horses had been shot down and carpeted the ground dead. But despite recapturing some abandoned cannon, Bradley's thrust met with no more success than had previous attempts to drive off the Confederates. Luther Bradley was struck down as his brigade reached midfield. Wounded in two places, he was helped to the rear. Laybolt's regiments moved up into a supporting position, but didn't join the advance into the field. Shortly thereafter, Sheridan ordered Bradley's brigade to pull back and join Laybolt. And so, in the end, this final federal assault at Vineyard Field accomplished little except to add to the growing casualty lists. By 6 p.m., other than some fitful skirmish fire, an eerie silence settled over Vineyard Field. Parts of seven Federal and six Confederate brigades had battled for control of this part of the battlefield for most of the afternoon. Losses had been heavy on both sides, and now details of men began the painstaking process of evacuating the wounded they could safely reach. On the Confederate side, Triggs, three regiments of Floridians and one of Virginians, continued holding the eastern edge of Vineyard Field, but pulled back some distance into the trees, leaving only skirmishers along the fence line. Triggs, 6th Florida, had suffered the heaviest losses of any of his regiments during its unsupported charge out into the middle of the field about 3.30. Triggs' other three regiments each suffered fewer than 10% losses compared to the 6th Florida's butcher's bill that topped 45%. Robertson's Texas Brigade and Benning's Brigade of Georgians had also suffered heavy losses. Casualties for both brigades totaled between one-quarter and one-third of those engaged, although heavy fighting the next day makes it impossible to calculate exact losses here on the 19th with precision. Robertson and Benning pulled their commands back into the woods north and east of Vineyard Field. 
On the federal side, the position held by Wilder's Lightning Brigade had provided the anchor the other federal brigades had needed to rally and hold fast along the Lafayette Road around Vineyard Field. Jefferson C. Davis, Thomas Wood, and Phil Sheridan had all shuttled their men behind or around the Lightning Brigade's position. Davis's division was shattered, losing 900 of the 2,500 men he carried into action on the 19th. Haig's brigade casualties were heaviest, which isn't surprising given the number of times the determined Norwegian led his four regiments forward against the rebels east of the Lafayette Road. Davis pulled his battered command back into the woods behind Wilder's line and began the arduous process of gathering in stragglers and reforming units. Still, though, the next day, his reconstituted division would only be the size of an average brigade. Tom Wood's division split early in the fight, with Harker's brigade charging north up the Lafayette Road, while Buell's brigade line was repeatedly disrupted by routed Federals from other commands running through its ranks. Tom Wood finally reassembled his two brigades to Wilder's rear about dusk that evening, pulling both Harker and Buell back into the large open field that led back to the Widow Glen's cabin and Army headquarters. Buell, who suffered the bulk of the division's casualties on the 19th, lost roughly 300 men, or about one-quarter of his strength, while Harker's losses numbered about 50. Barnes' wandering brigade, still detached from Van Cleve's division, joined Sheridan in the woods southwest of Vineyard Field on Wilder's right flank. Barnes and Bradley also suffered significant losses, each bleeding away between 250 and 300 men. Wilder's Lightning Brigade suffered surprisingly few casualties, even taking into account his largely defensive role. Combined losses from his four engaged regiments totaled fewer than 50 men. All told in the four hours of combat, 1,800 Federals and about 1,250 Confederates had been killed, wounded, captured, or were missing. Untold others would show up that night after the fighting was over, having been separated from their units after becoming confused and disoriented amid the repeated charges and countercharges that afternoon. For many men, the pressure of the intense combat overloaded their emotions. When William Carlin found his dead horse, an animal he was deeply fond of, amidst the wreckage of combat, he removed the saddle and freely admitted he, quote, seated myself upon it and then gave way to a long, hysterical crying spell, which I could no more have stopped than I could have stopped the setting sun. More eloquently than any words, the exhausted general's reaction perfectly communicated the horrors of that day. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Failure in the Saddle, Nathan Bedford Forrest, Joe Wheeler, and the Failure of the Confederate Cavalry in the Chickamauga Campaign by David A. Powell. Uh, obviously, this book doesn't really have anything to do specifically with this episode, but we should have recommended it earlier in the Chickamauga story arc, and it just slipped our minds. 
So now we're making up for that slip up. Any of David Pyle's Chickamauga books are excellent, and Failure in the Saddle is no exception. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Then we want to take a minute and say thank you to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade. Just yesterday, we released members episode number 138, Mrs. General Stewart, in which we look at the life of Flora Stewart after the May 1864 death of her husband, Jeb Stewart. Anyway, thanks to new members Zachary, Avanish, Michael S., David B., Scott H., Jeff F., and Frank H. for their support of the podcast. And thanks to Mike H. and Lois G. for their recent donations. A thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time as we continue with the story of the Battle of Chickamauga. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.